What's going on, everybody? This is another episode of Adventures in DevOps. Today, I have Jillian Rowe with me. Hello. And I'm Will Button. And today, we are talking about infrastructure as code. You remember that time where you ran into that works on my machine kind of problem? And you get in and you're thinking, okay, I checked the libraries, I checked everything else. And then it turns out that there's something really weird about the production data that's just different from your test data. Or maybe you're thinking, man, it'd be nice if I had a database that was as large as the production database so that I could actually see what the performance characteristics are. But you can't copy the production data because you don't want to have all the customer information on your computer. Plus, you may be running into regulatory things like financial or medical. So what do you do? Well, you try out tonic.ai. Tonic.ai will look at your data set will do the analysis and will build you a customized data set for your application so that you can test it and run it on CI and on your development machine without exposing any of the actual data from production. It's awesome, it's easy to use, and it's definitely worth checking out. So go check them out at tonic.ai. And uh, so we, we were talking a little bit before I hit the record button and we started talking about Amazon CDK. I've seen it around. I've kind of played with it for a while, but now I'm actually using it in a project and I'm actually kind of excited about it. I'm more than kind of excited about it. I'm really excited about it because the thing that I found so cool about it is um, not only is it like infrastructure as code, but it's infrastructure as code that lives with the code for the application that it's actually running and and monitoring. And I think that's super cool because one of my goals whenever I work with a client is always to build something that you don't need dedicated DevOps people for. You know, give your software engineers the tools to build the infrastructure that they need and then put guardrails around it so that it gets done the right way even if they don't really know what the right way is. And I think CDK is a really cool way of doing that because it works within the application that they're already using, already familiar with, and uses the the language that they know. What do you think, Jillian? I haven't looked into it enough to have really formed an opinion, but I think once I get into it, I'll really like it because one thing that always kind of frustrates me with these other sort of languages, you know, like there was... Salt stack and that was very like YAML and then you could sort of insert Python, but it was it was kind of weird and I think they uh, I don't know I think they kind of imploded at some point I don't remember and now there's Terraform which is like a real fancy make file but it's still mostly <laughs> I mean it's a little bit more like flexible than just a YAML file but it's it's basically a configuration file and at some point you you hit something and you want like code so that was always one thing that I was like why can't I just have code? You also get like nice things when you're writing in code, like syntax checkers and uh, right. like the introspection on the code. It's much better for checking errors. I found I've never really found like a great error checker for Terraform, even just something like you're typing something here and like there's a typo in it. So maybe it exists and maybe it doesn't like, you know, like even like small things like that, I found a lot harder to do in Terraform. I have looked into it a little bit. It's being used pretty heavily on the AWS parallel cluster which is the project 
for it's like a wrapper around deploying uh, high performance compute systems on AWS. And like under so that application is itself using the AWS CDK. And from there, like it, it looks really neat. I think it'll be next on my list of, of stuff that I learned will be to go learn that. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I've really been enjoying using it. And like you mentioned before we started recording, you know, it all it's doing is it's rendering cloud for formation templates under the hood. So you kind of get the best of both worlds there. You get to interact with your application using the code for your application to create the infrastructure. But then whenever you run that, it generates a CloudFormation template. So then you can go into the AWS console, take a look at the generated template and all of the things you can do with CloudFormation, you know, to see what resources were created and uh, detect drift in the stack, which I think that's a super cool feature that doesn't get enough publicity or get talked about enough is the ability to just check the stack and see what's different out running in your stack versus what the template thinks is supposed to be there. Yeah, I have noticed kind of like with sort of the direction that I'm going in more and more, I'm like, oh, I need to learn cloud formation. I didn't really want to specifically learn cloud formation. So the, the AWS CDK seems to be a much like better option for me for that. And part of that is because I've been getting into this sort of like weird place where I have too many things that I'm deploying and I kind of want to get them set up on a sort of essentially on the AWS marketplace. And, you know, it's AWS. And so they want to be using the AWS services, which are essentially cloud formation to be able to do that. And and so I'm thinking this is the best of all the worlds is for me to just go go learn the AWS CDK. Initially, I learned Terraform because I was like, well, maybe I'll do all the clouds. And now I'm like, no, I'm not going to do all the clouds. Just, you know, like the four things that I do, as it turns out, are keeping me really, really busy. So I think um, it's another kind of specialize, learn the AWS CDK, get more into the cloud formation, deploy more things on the AWS marketplace, hopefully make millions and retire to the Caribbean. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's one of the, in my experience anyways, I think one of the reasons a lot of people go with Terraform is because it works across multiple cloud providers. But in the practical reality of running a business, I don't think running across multiple providers is really the the feature that people need as much as they think they need it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it definitely makes sense. I mean, I suppose it's also like what kind of industry you're in as well. Most of my clients are all on AWS. So I've, I've only very occasionally had people on other platforms. And then it, it tends to be like, I just don't do kind of the low-lying infrastructure. I just work on maybe the, um like the application deployment packaging up Docker images, which is, you know, which is going to be the same everywhere. Yeah. yeah, I definitely agree with you. I don't think most shops are going to be multi-cloud or going to need it. I think it's just like, it's so much overhead and you know, I think you're really going to have to have like a separate team for each cloud platform. I don't see how it's possible to keep up like on all of them, because I know like, and I mean, I'm not kidding. I do like four things on AWS. I do the the traditional HPC, the AWS HPC and Kubernetes and just, you know, and then like some like bioinformatic specific things within those. And that keeps just keeping up on just those couple things keeps me really busy. So I don't know how on earth the shop is going to be like, you know, multi-platform, multi-cloud all the things, unless maybe you're a big enterprise company that just has a lot of teams, then that that could work for you. Yeah. And and those teams, I think, are going to be very, very specific into their roles. Like you mentioned, you know, you'll have the AWS team and the, the Azure team and so on, because you can't, I don't think you can 
have deep expertise in all of those at the same time. It's just too many different features and products being released at the same time. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. I think right now what I'm really waiting on for the CDK is I want to see what kind of community support it gets. So for example, I don't tend to write an awful lot of my own Terraform modules. It tends to be more like I'm picking and choosing from existing modules and then just building them together like 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 Legos as I do. And I don't really want to have to write everything from scratch with the AWS CDK. It seems like for some of the things that I do, that's not going to be an issue. So for example, the AWS parallel cluster, that takes care of two of my main infrastructure stacks. And then for for EKS, even that I moved over to the EKS CTL, like it's a command line tool that itself, like you give it a YAML file and then it renders the cloud formation templates for you. So I'm already kind of like, I've already been sort of moving towards the cloud formation AWS side of things, but I, I really want more, more support. There's some things that exist in Terraform that I still kind of need. One of them is the, the cost estimator. I tend to use that quite a lot because I'm working with clients who have kind of various degrees of price sensitivity. And so to be able to kind of run like the cost estimator and be like, all right, you like I make them sign a piece of paper or like, you know, a digital document now saying that they agree that this is like going to be the approximate price. And here's kind of a low, middle, high of how this can go. And I found that has saved me a lot of headache lately. And I so I really need that for the CDK. I don't know if that exists. I wouldn't really, you know, as much as I want the kind of shiny things like the code introspection and better type checking and all that kind of thing. I don't like there are there are just a few things that I don't know how well I would be able to give up until they exist. So I'm hoping other people, you know, the smart people of the world, smart DevOps people go take on the AWS CDK and, you know, write some of these plugins that I need. Yeah, it does seem to be fairly community driven. And I think that's common with a lot of AWS products is they kind of, they start with, uh, you know, releasing it and then they see what people do with it. I, I was one of the early users to AWS Fargate. We were using that before it was released to the public. And so what they do is they they release it with just a bare minimal feature set and then see what you try to do with it and then go add those features, which is really a great way. You know, if you're in the startup industry like I am, that's the perfect way to launch your business. Um, but as the consumer of that, it can be frustrating because you're like, oh my God, will you just add this feature <laughs> and so it's kind of a, a double-edged sword there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how can you release this without this critical piece? You know, and in reality, it's just critical to me. What's up, Jonathan? Oh, we might have another hey. panelist. Do we? Do we? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Sweet. So we're okay. we're talking about Amazon CDK and infrastructure as code. Have you used CDK? A little bit, but not very much. No. Yeah. So no, I've, I've toyed with it. What's your go-to for infrastructure as code? Well, that's a good question. It depends a lot on the team I'm working with. Right. I like to say that the poor man's infrastructure as code is a bash script. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that only scales so far, of course, but that's, that's where I usually start on, on small, small new teams. Uh, you know, script it. You know, it and, if, and if you can't get it to work in a bash script, start at least with a, a, a well-documented readme file so that some other human can repeat what you've done. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. It's um, IAC should be iterated on just like any other code base and, and you pick the right tool for the job. And when you're just starting out, bash scripts, I think, are a perfectly acceptable way to go. 
you know, versus the alternative working with startups like I do, I see a lot of startups that will try to implement a full scale Terraform plus Ansible plus multi-cloud provider solution for their MVP. And it's like, no, don't, don't do that. You're building technical debt that is going to prevent you from being able to scale and grow your business. Yeah. I've also used Terraform. I've used uh, Packer to some extent. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I like Terraform and I hate Terraform at the same time. Right. It's, it's definitely not a place to start, but it's, uh, it has a, the model is a good one. It has some rough edges. I'm really looking forward to it maturing and being a little more user-friendly over time. But yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good tool. Yeah. Is Chef still around? Is that still a product? I'm sure it is. I've never actually used Chef, uh, but I'm certain that it's still around. I don't know how widely used it is. I used it what feels like many years ago and uh, it was okay. It was, it was very advanced for, for the time, but it kind of seemed like it just, at least from my perspective, it lost, uh, it lost its ability to compete whenever Ansible and, and SaltStack and then later Terraform came out. And then the company that made Chef released another tool that almost looked like they were giving up on Chef in favor of a new tool, but I can't remember now what the name of that new one was. You know, the first infrastructure as code I did before that was a term that I that I recognized was called Debian packages. <laughs> what? What's the what are these packages you speak of? <laughs> But we would uh, we would distribute our software. In fact, we, we had like a, a default CD, a default Debian CD or DVD image that we would use that just had all of everything preceded and would just pop that in a server and it would load everything we needed. So yeah, that that was kind of Terraform before Terraform before AWS. So the the, the concept has been around for ages. Yeah, it really has. I think the thing that's advanced it to where we are now is just this the ability for the capabilities that the cloud has introduced, you know, the cloud has allowed software engineers to take more control in how their infrastructure looks. And of course, they're used to writing code. So the tools started to take on a, a code like look. But prior to that, you know, you would talk with IT and tell them you needed a server and they would get approval, order the server, build it, install it, rack it, that kind of stuff. But even back then, you know, there were tools available for streamlining that process, like like you were mentioning, you know, custom packages and things like that. So what are the things that you look for whenever you're implementing infrastructure as code as far as which tool you're going to choose? The first thing I look for, and, and this is actually before, kind, kind of a precursor to that question, is, is the thing I'm configuring configurable from code? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't want a web service. Uh, for, for example, Zapier. As far as I know, you can't configure Zapier from code. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they have a, a way to do that now. But you have to configure that through the web interface, which makes me nervous. I do use Zapier for a few things, but I don't have a Git. I, I can't store that in Git. So if my account gets deleted or Zapier crashes or goes down or something and they lose my data, I'll have to reconfigure that from scratch somehow, which would be annoying. Fortunately, my Zapier configuration is pretty small. I think I could do it in a half an hour. But the point is, I try to choose tools that that support that sort of workflow that can be configured through code. It yeah. means uploading a JSON config snippet or at the very minimum, a, a series of commands I can execute from a bash script that will get it to the state I want. Right. So that's the first thing I look for. Before I even worry about what tool am I gonna do this with is will my will the thing I'm configuring support this? Second, what's the simplest tool that will get the job done? Which is why bash scripts come up so often. 
<laughs> right. uh, and then, you know, the third most, you know, the third most important thing probably is, is it a tool that my team knows how to use? Yeah. And so, you know, if I have a team of people who know how to use Terraform, then that's a great tool. If I have to train my entire team to use Terraform, uh, maybe we'll stick with Bash a little bit longer than maybe we otherwise would. Uh, or maybe we'll use, you know, if I have somebody, an Ansible expert on on the team, maybe we'll we'll use Ansible, you know. So it, I think the most important thing is, is it a tool that my team understands? Not necessarily, is it per se the best tool for the job? But is it the, is it the most powerful tool on the hands of my workmen, of my craftsmen, if you will? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. That reminds me of before we started recording, Julie and I were talking about Pulumi. Is that right? Pulumi? It's a JavaScript-based IC tool, and I just don't like it, but that's just my personal preference because I don't like using JavaScript on the back end. I hate dealing with async and async await and callbacks and all that kind of stuff in a an environment where things need to operate serially, and so I don't like it. But to your point, if there's a team that is well-versed in JavaScript, you know, then that's probably going to be the right tool for them to use. I also think there's a lot of wisdom in your approach of using bash files as your first iteration, because one of the things I've learned from doing this is it doesn't always go the way you think you want to. So by starting with something simple and quick, you learn where it's going to fail quickly rather than building out a lot of infrastructure and a lot of dependencies only to find out that your initial approach is either incorrect or needs to change. Can you guys hear me? Sure can. Welcome back. Wow. Thank you. Now, I'm joining from my phone, where I do have the Z-Scan installed. So uh, I, I missed a little bit of the conversation there, but yeah, make files. Fast and make files. At the end of the day, that's really <laughs> kind of, I think, like what we're all doing anyways. We're throwing some fancier wrappers on top of it. But right. it's all fast and storage. Yeah, everything. I, I, like make, I like make, too. There are places where I prefer Make over Bash and other places where I prefer Bash over Make. The big problem with Make is that the young folks don't know how to use it, <laughs> which is sad because it's, it's a powerful tool. But. Yeah, I think there's, I think it's easy to get confused with Make files because when you go look at the documentation and try to learn about it, a lot of it is geared towards Make's original intended use case of compiling C code. And so whenever you tell someone, hey, yeah, if you want to bring up your local document Docker environment, just type make up and then they go Google what is make and they start seeing stuff on how to compile C code. I think it can be very confusing for them because we're using make these days in a way that I don't think was ever anticipated. Right. Which, which is one reason to, to prefer bash. So which is why I always default to bash and, and only consider make if I don't actually know when I would consider make these days. There was a time when I was very comfortable with make, but you know, it, it takes a while to get to get powerful with make. It takes a while to learn what you're doing. And then you have code that nobody else can read, which is has become more important to me over the years. That's not to say that bash is readable. Bash is pretty unreadable too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bad. But at least it's more ubiquitous. I tend to use make these days as just a way to call bash scripts or other commands. I do very little actually in the make file other than just call something else. And I just put it in there because then it's an easy one-stop shop to consolidate all the commands and actions for a given project. Do that too. It's like a, like real cheap documentation. Just, right. um, you know, like restart will have stop, remove, start again. And so it ends up like collecting different, um, you know, different commands and things into a single place that's easier for, I think, people to reference. Are you guys using any other uh, infrastructure as code or is it all Terraform and CloudFormation? 
and maybe the AWS CDK once we get going with that. So I've got the current project I'm on. They're in their own data center, Kubernetes environment, and I use Helm charts a lot there. And then uh, a make file that just calls the right Helm chart. <laughs> <laughs> I use a lot of Helm charts and, and I like Flux. I don't know if you're familiar with Flux. No. It's basically, nope. basically takes a Git repository full of Kubernetes manifests and makes it, makes it so. Uh, oh. So it's it's kind. Of, it, I think it's they, they call themselves Git ops, which I think is a silly term because you know we don't need more blank ops. But whatever. It's it's an open source project created by uh, by Weave or WeaveWorks. Uh, so you can you can use their service too, and it works with Helm or with standard Kubernetes manifests. It doesn't do the full spectrum of of like that what Terraform does because it's just Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. But if you basically give it a, a Git directory full of Kubernetes manifest, it deploys it for you. And if you use the Weave web interface, then you can trigger upgrades or downgrades or redeployments or whatever from the web interface. And it it does that by creating commit in Git. And then the daemon in the background watches for changes from Git and, and it applies those as they happen. So you're guaranteed that whatever's in Git is what's in your cluster. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is will, be, will be within a few minutes, of course. It's not, it's not always <laughs> We hope. Uh. Yeah. No, it sounds very similar to Argo CD. Is it? Is it close to that? I haven't looked at Argo. Okay, uh, maybe. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of overlapping features there. Well, I think that kind of loops back to a, a point we were discussing earlier. That I think initially we all kind of wanted a, an infrastructure as code tool that does it all, but none of us are actually doing it all. And I think, uh, like for myself, I tried for a bit, and then I was just pretty much tired and needed a nap and decided, okay, not doing this anymore. I have like, you know, my three infrastructure stacks that I'm going to concentrate on. And I don't really care so much which manner of tool it is that's doing them. I just want to use like the best tool for the job. So for me, that's, uh, you know, for the AWS Kubernetes, that's the EKS ETL, which renders cloud formation under the hood. And for HPC, that's the AWS parallel cluster, which is now using the AWS CDK to then, I guess, render cloud formation under the hood. And I, I still use Terraform quite a bit for like anything that's not those two tools. But yeah, I think over time, if I find if I find something, you know, like Jonathan, what we were talking about with the with kind of like the Helm infrastructure as code process, but just really specific to the you know the tool sets that I'm on, I kind of think that would be better. I I really found that Flux when I used it did it did 98% of what we needed. The only stuff it didn't do was. Well, of course, any services outside of Kubernetes, if you have RDS or something that you're running, it won't handle that. And it doesn't handle managing your Kubernetes cluster itself. So we, we use Terraform for those sorts of things. Very on. Which seems like a good, that seems like a good separation of responsibilities anyway. True. Yeah, in many cases. Yeah. Bring the baby on the show. He can be on the <laughs> Yeah, he's over here. Guys, I've been asking Jonathan about this for weeks. I want the baby on the show. I don't. I don't think she's going to give up until you bring the baby on the show, Jonathan. We'll, we'll see. No. <laughs> this is probably no, the last is. week he'll be in my recording studio because uh, we're heading back to Amsterdam on Friday. So nice. Then I'll have my own dedicated office and recording studio with my good microphone again, and he he can't climb those stairs. I mean, he he can, but we don't let him. Oh, that that'll stop soon now that he's walking, right? So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he'll be everywhere soon enough. It'll never end. So have you, this is a deviation from infrastructure as code, have you found that you missed having your home office set up environment? 
Yes. yes. <laughs> that was a reluctant yes. <laughs> I think it does start to weigh on you after a while. Like I, I found yeah, that too I, when I'm traveling at some point. I'm like, all right, I'm I'm done. I need to, I need like my own pillow. Yeah, there there are definitely times when I like to to change the scenery and go sit at a cafe or something. But I want that to be an option, not a requirement. Yeah, yeah, yeah I found that too. Really little ones around. I guess one other thing I, I could mention that I've I've done with infrastructure as code. I I, I could I plug a tool I wrote. Yes, nice. One of my picks too. <laughs> if you're Game using CouchDB, if you're using CouchDB, which I know applies to exactly two people listening to this show, <laughs> uh, one of them is me. <laughs> I've written a tool that that makes sort of a CouchDB infrastructure's code easier. Basically, it, it synchronizes a, a file system. So I, I should I should I should step back. CouchDB is a document store, JSON document store. It's a NoSQL database. So similar to MongoDB in, in principle. Uh, the main advantage of CouchDB over MongoDB is you can run it in your own cluster. So you could have three or ten or a thousand nodes in this sort of scale to the, to the sky. But there's this bootstrapping problem that it, it's sometimes complicated or, or cumbersome to to populate a CouchDB database. So th think of like MySQL dump and MySQL restore or, or the equivalent in Postgres or whatever database you use. So I've written a tool that will basically do that for you to a file system. So Couch one of CouchDB's biggest selling points is it will synchronize between, e these databases can synchronize between each other. But I've written a, a driver, I've written it in Go. So I wrote a, a, a Go driver for CouchDB. And on top of that, I, I built a file system-based backend. So now you can synchronize between a CouchDB database and your file system. And it just stores everything as JSON files on your file system. And then you can synchronize in reverse as well. So I've written a little tool called, uh, I think it's just called Kivik. I'll put a link, of course, in the show notes. But it lets you do a replication from file system to CouchDB instance. And so we used this at a previous uh, client I worked with at, to store our CouchDB data and the user permissions and all that stuff as JSON files in our code that could just be synchronized easily into the cloud. And, th and that leads to the, the point I was gonna make when I remembered that I wrote this tool. And that is sometimes your infrastructure as code can just be actual literal code. You know, write a write a code, write some code. Maybe it's not in Bash, maybe write it in, in Python or in Go or whatever that does the things you need in very customized sort of infrastructure as literal code. But that's that's one way to go if you can't find a tool. If Terraform doesn't do what you need, uh, and, and Bash is too hard to read or, or too cumbersome or whatever, or doesn't have the right SDKs, use a language that does and just write some code that does your thing for you. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So I really like that point. I've been doing that a lot. Like I'll use whatever sort of tools suits the job, but it's been uh, much more of like a kitchen sink than it used to, where I used to pretty much try to be all on Terraform all the time. And now I'm like, oh, whatever, I'm not dealing with this. I'll just 
you know, I'll just go whichever one is made the best. And then I actually like to have like a lot more tests than I normally find within kind of the default module. So if I'm spinning up a Kubernetes cluster or an HPC cluster or whatever, and I've started to write all of those in PyTest. And one of the really nice things that I've noticed, or a really nice trend that I've noticed lately is this adoption of the uh, open API spec. <gasps> it's the baby! Hi! Oh, it's the baby. <laughs> I'm having all these technical difficulties and he can't see me. Oh my goodness, look at him. Either. He's so cute. Oh, he can't hear he me either. Me. Okay, fine. He's just looking at me like, Dad, what are you doing? I know, what's happening here? That's it, kiddo. Go press friends. some buttons on the computer. You're going to be on the on the podcast now, but you're not speaking. Well, no, of course he's not talking now. Oh, he's he's going to start pushing buttons. <laughs> all right, it's time to send you back to Mommy. Mommy has an orange for you over there. Ooh, I bribe my kids with food all the time, too. It doesn't work as well now that they're older. They require, like, better bribes. Like, I want a phone. They're getting, it's more expensive bribes. But, uh, yeah, but I guess back to the infrastructure as code. So now, you know, there's this, like, trend to adopt this open API spec. And I know uh, Kubernetes has one and Parallel Cluster and, and a couple of other tools that I use do. And you can take the open API spec and you can generate, like, a client application and I want to say any language. I know that you can for like Python and maybe actually, okay, I don't know. I know that you can in Python anyways. And then I'll take like that client library that's generated. And then I'll basically just run like a bunch of kind of what I refer to as, you know, tests for dummies where I take PyTest and I just basically assert a bunch of things that I think are supposed to be true. So I'll even do this with like my Helm charts and things like that because I'm, I'm not real, you know, confident of my uh, Helm like templating abilities. And so I'll just create like, a matrix of different values files, and then I'll have Helm run through all of them, like generate out the YAMLs, and then I use PyTest to assert that different things are true that I think should be true. Do you guys ever do stuff like that? It's just me. Just you. Just me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do, I do to, uh, yeah, to a certain extent. I think your use case, you're building something to be consumable by an infinite number of people, and so you you really have to like go through all those use cases to try and minimize any failures ahead of time. Recently, I've been working on this application that launches Kubernetes environments dynamically. And what I did there was I'm, I'm launching everything using the Kubernetes client for Python. And so the tests I wrote for that would give it, you know, give it a certain set of parameters to the function. And then I do assertions in PyTest that make sure that the the Kubernetes API was called with the parameters I was expecting it to be called with. Ah, I like those kind of tests. Have you ever tried to write like a hypothesis test where like in, instead of giving it like exactly like, okay, assert this, assert this, assert this, you give it sort of a set of conditions that should be true. And then there's a hypothesis test runner in Python I think it's used more in like the data science ecosystem, but it will kind of generate the the sort of matrix of values that it thinks should be true and generate different conditions for you. It can like ghost write tests and things like this and then basically run through all of those tests. And I've always thought it would be really, really interesting to apply something like that to these kind of like complex environments like Kubernetes or HPC or whatever, because, you know, there, there's always things that pop up that I didn't think of with my test and I keep just, I just sort of fix them and then add them onto the test to make sure that they are in fact fixed. But having like kind of a, an application that's smarter than me running my test would be quite nice too. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a perfect 
like relevant tie-in to what was going to be one of my picks on this episode. I've been looking at openai.com and there's some really cool um, applications that they've built out here on it that are on their site that do things like automatically write tests for your code or suggest tests for your code. Or another one was to convert code from one language to another language. And so I was thinking about that, you know, because testing infrastructure is hard. And so I was trying to figure out a way to leverage something like openai.com that you can give it a set of parameters and use the power of AI to figure out whether or not you're doing what you think you're doing or not. That is very cool. I hadn't, I hadn't never heard of that. So of course, like I had to just bring it up real quick. And um, yeah, that is, that is very neat. I wonder what people will end up building out of it. GitHub yeah, Copilot like is built with creator. it. Yeah. And there's Marv the chatbot, which I just love. It's like you ask Marv the chatbot, what does HTML stand for? And his response is, was Google too busy? Hypertext markup language. The T uh-huh. is for try to ask better questions in the future. <laughs> I can definitely see how that would happen. Like how eventually the you know the AI bots would just get real snarky about absolutely everything. That's great though. Can I can I plug that into Alexa? That would be nice. Right. <laughs> I think there's a there's a new project here. Plug in. Marv the sarcastic chatbot into Alexa, but use the Samuel L. Jackson voice pack. Voice pack. <laughs> Ask me what HTML stands for one more time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that would be really fun until I got like really fired. But before that, like that moment, like from when it executed to when I got fired, would just be fantastic. So did you discuss this before I joined, but why should we care about infrastructure as code? You know, it's yeah. probably a good question that we never even brought up. No, I find that I do that a lot. That you do care. Yeah, I do that a lot. Like I have assumptions I've had for decades and it never dawns on me to explain or or question those. So good question. So why do we why do we care about right. infrastructure as code? I would say because we want to be able to deploy the same thing many times and have some like degree of consistency between the deployments. And so, uh, you know, people are very, very bad at doing the same thing over and over again because we get like bored and distracted and hungry and, you know, like we're essentially overgrown toddlers. And so, you don't, you really don't want people like doing the same thing over and over and over again. So now we have these, you know, nice tools that are supposed to abstract these things away. And then I feel like the pendulum keeps swinging from like one side to the other where, you know, it's very open and very you know, here are the Legos and you can build absolutely anything to here's the Harry Potter box of Legos. You can only build the Harry Potter castle and that's it. I don't know. What do you guys think? Why should we care? I I think the main reason I care about infrastructure as code is because I want a job and that's what all the recruiters are asking for. (laughs) That's that's fair. I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately where uh, I think, well, it was you, right, that had the tweet that the average like age of a software engineer is 39, which by the way, I found to be true. Because I, I am considerably older than, like, I think just about everybody on the last few software teams that I've been on. By, like, a margin, too, it's not like, maybe I'm older. It's like, no, I am I am definitely older. And, uh, you know, so for right now, DevOps is kind of the thing that's, like, hot and keeping me employed and making me money and all that kind of thing. And so what what is what is the next title on LinkedIn going to be? And I'm, I'm fairly generous with, like, just sort of changing my title when I'm like, eh, I'm, I'm done with this thing. Like, I used to be data analyst and then software engineer and then HPC admin. And then I'm like, sure, 
I can be a DevOps engineer, you know? What the hell? I can do that. So what's, what is going to be the next title after DevOps? And after infrastructure as code, what comes next? But, I wanted, but to, to provide a, a more substantial answer, so, sorry, do you want to go, Will, first? No, go ahead. Okay, yeah. So a more substantial answer, although, although I don't think that's an, actually an invalid answer, but it's not my answer. My, my real answer would be <laughs> infrastructure as code gives us assurances that we know what's, what's running in production. Uh, so, and of course, I guess there's different degrees. My ideal of infrastructure as code is that nothing gets done to the infrastructure that isn't first expressed in code. And then from there, the deployment happens automatically. That's the ideal. It, it may take a while to get there, but that's the ideal. And the reason that I like that is because then I know with certainty, assuming things aren't broken, what's running in production. And I don't have to ever guess, oh, did I do that one thing? Or if if your system crashes and needs to be rebuilt, or as Julian said, if you want to deploy another copy of it, you have certainty that what's in your code works because it's working. So you know, that, that's that's the main reason that leads to several other sort of sub benefits. Uh, one of those is just sort of auditability. You, you have a good sense of who did something. You know, if, if something changed, you can look at the Git history or wherever you're keeping your your code, your infrastructure's code code, and see who made the change and hopefully why if they left a good comment or a good explanation in their in their commit message. So, but th- that's the main reason is it's 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 the reproducibility and being certain of what what is running. I think that's brave of you to assume that I'm commenting my code. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the um, for, right? right. The the illustration I commonly use for this is to is is I'll say that it's the purpose of infrastructure as code is to defeat our arch enemy of Captain Button Clicky, because you can log into any any provider anywhere and point and click your way to success and get something up and running, but then later future you may not remember what buttons you clicked or someone else on your team may come along and click different buttons and it's really difficult to find out when that happened if you can at all there's some some scenarios in certain cloud providers where you simply will never know that other than troubleshooting for hours because your production site is all of a sudden down and so i I think that's the the motivation for everyone to embrace infrastructure as code is it's a way to document and track what's happening in production so that you're not relying on remembering what things you clicked in a web UI or tracking those or doing screen captures or whatever. And so based on that, I find it really frustrating whenever I encounter infrastructure as code tools that just replace one button clicky process with their own button clicky process. Yeah, I do always get the impression that is uh, some, you know, like job security in there somewhere that's really happening. Yeah. Yeah, but I find, I mean, the, the infrastructure as code stuff is all great, but I still find the best assurance is um, like is having the tests, specifically the sort of, you know, like tests for dummies that I like to write that very explicitly state this this thing that I think should be true is in fact true. Do you put comments in there as to why you think it should be true? Mm. Okay, that's a no. (laughs) 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 Probably not, but let let me try to clean that up a little bit in case, you know, any of my clients is potentially listening to this. I don't think most (laughs) of us do, but I will at least. So usually it's like if there was some problem that was caused because I didn't have the test, then I will reference the problem. And then, because then I like to have a comment to make sure that nobody deletes it, because that's that's actually been a real problem with for me on like some teams that I've been in. Like we don't we don't like what is all this stuff? We don't need all this stuff, and then it gets deleted, and then my like 
random assert state or not random, like they're there for a reason, but all of my assert this is true statements are gone. And so all of my like tests for dummies, and by the way, the dummy is me. Like I am the dummy. I need the test there. They're all gone. And then suddenly I don't really know if anything is working anymore. So yeah, if there if it's an actual problem, I will reference it. And sometimes I will state the reason why, although that's usually more for to make sure that other people don't delete it than to actually explain anything. Comment, do not delete this. I'll even put in there sometimes a comment to myself. Will, do not delete this. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know who's caused me more problems in my life than anyone else? Me. <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> cool. Anything else we want to say on this before we move to picks? All righty then. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Y'all got your picks ready? I, I guess. <laughs> all right, Jonathan, kick us off. Oh, we know you've got one. Yeah, yeah, I already mentioned the first one. Yeah. It's the uh, so-called Kivik CLI tool. Kivik is the name of my Go driver package for, for CouchDB. And the CLI tool, there'll be a link in the description if you're interested in that. You don't need to be using Go to use this tool. It's a self-contained tool. It just happens to be written in Go. So no matter what language you're using, this tool lets you interact with and uh, CouchDB administrative tools without the cumbersome curl style command lines. It basically makes that simpler for you. Uh, and the, the killer feature, the one I mentioned earlier, is that it does this replication from file system into CouchDB. Uh, my second pick is going to be another article I wrote because it's related to the topic today. It's called How to Automate Anything. And it, it's it's actually a pretty short read. And it has a picture of Cookie Monster, so you know it's a good one. Uh, yeah. But it talks about how to automate anything. And it's kind of, the you could think of it as a recipe for getting to infrastructure as code or automating a CI/CD pipeline or anything like that. So, And the example it gives is how to bake cookies, which is why Cookie Monster is involved. So... It's a good, good article. I've gotten a lot of good comments on it. So I'll have a link to that also. If you're interested in expanding your infrastructure as code from, from less than complete, uh, whether it's from zero or from halfway there, you want a, a little framework to get you there, this will help. Nice. Jillian, what you got? I've got Dash. So Dash is this framework written in Python that is a web application, but it, it's Python and its JavaScript as well. So somehow it takes like a whole bunch of HTML elements that I think it renders in a React, which is a JavaScript framework, and like syncs them up kind of transparently so that you don't have to do it between the web UI and the backend code. And I think I picked it a few weeks ago, but I've been digging a lot more into it. And one of the things that I didn't realize was just what a good job it does of taking care of, of state. And by state, I mean like you want to track something like when a user presses a button, then it should, you know, trigger a callback on like the server side. And that is so great because, you know, I've tried to learn JavaScript so many times and I actually have learned JavaScript so many times, but it's just, it's just one of these things that just doesn't stick in my head because I'm not using it enough, but I use Python all the time. So for me to be able to just go through and write in Python code, like, okay, input, and then the ID of the element, like the ID of the button and then track like this action on it, the number of clicks or when the data changes or something like that. And then it just gives that back to me in Python code. That's been great. Um, I even had to add like a, a JavaScript-y like custom component to it. And they have a like component 
boilerplate. I think it's a cookie cutter project template. And that was, it was much easier than I thought that it would be. Like I was really resisting like, oh no, I don't want to have to make a custom component. It's going to be hard. And they actually did make it very, very easy. So I really like that. I've basically given up on all other web frameworks and I'm just using Dash now. It integrates with uh, Flask if you're using the Python Flask framework. And then I guess for a book pick, I read, I reread his Dark Materials for, I don't know, about the 80 millionth time. It's like a, I think it's like a children's or young adults book series, but it's really good. It's one of my favorite series. There's also a really good BBC dramatization where like they do like the different voices and the different characters. And the first book is a real tearjerker. So maybe don't listen to that one or read that one if you don't want to be crying for the rest of the day for some reason. But beyond that, they're really great. So <laughs> Aside from crying, it was great. <laughs> it was so good, though. It's such a good series. Right on. I, I'm glad to hear you pick Dash again, because I'm seeing I've been working with another client who's using a very similar sounding framework on for Rails. And I'm drawing a complete blank on the name of it. But it feels like the whole industry, you know, we swung from doing everything on the server to everything on the browser. And now we're swinging back to doing things on the server again. So yeah, there's been several of those tools coming out and I expect to see those becoming more and more common to address some of the issues that we've encountered with trying to run everything in the client's browser. So my picks, uh, picking openai.com, go check it out, take a look and see how we can leverage this to make DevOps easier and more accessible for everyone. Because I think there's some, some potential overlap there. And then my other pick from the category of hashtag shameless self-promotion is along the lines of infrastructure as code, check out the DevOps roadmap for 2022 that I created that talks about infrastructure as code. And the way I built this roadmap is you pick a particular segment or facet of DevOps that you're interested in, and it kind of gives you a high-level summary of what the roles and responsibilities for that are. And then at the end of that, which is only like a half a page or so, this is like a, a guide, not a how-to. But at the end of that section, it kind of gives you a choose-your-own-adventure format of how that particular topic you were just looking at ties into some of the other skills in DevOps. And so just by following that through and choosing whatever is of interest to you at the time, eventually you will cover all of the areas of DevOps and kind of create your own unique learning plan that's unique to you and tailored to your existing skills and desires. So check that out, devopsfordevelopers.io forward slash roadmap, and then we'll have a link down in the show notes below. Hashtag in rant. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, sounds, sounds like a great. We'll definitely take a look. I still need to know what my next LinkedIn title is going to be. OpenAI.com. Just let it figure it out for you. <laughs> That's actually, that that might be the best idea. Really, that might be the best one. Yeah, have it figure out the title for you and then generate like 500 tweets that you can queue up to start like spreading awareness of the term. So when people come across your title, they're like, oh, I've heard that somewhere. This is the new hotness. Yeah. This is what people need to be throwing money at me for. Yeah. All right. Cool. We've all got our homework. All right. Good chat. See you guys next week. Till next time. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.